Hello everybody. So <laughs> today we're going to talk about, you know, the kind of language that we could, you know, in the future ultimately develop in order to talk about psychedelic experiences, you know, more broadly exotic states of consciousness. Of course, why the current language that we have to a large extent is, you know, very insufficient, is not optimized for talking about, you know, exotic mediums of thought. But, you know, I am a epistemological optimist so i think uh we actually have a good chance if you know we develop the 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 math and the you know the 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 grammar and the syntax for these i think we can do a lot of progress it's one of the things that uh hopefully we will get to do <laughs> at least in this lifetime uh here's the hoping okay but first the quality of the day is uh silence and uh you know i highly recommend if you don't have them already, I, I do think it's very good to have on hand always uh, earplugs and, uh, you know, things such as these. Uh, I think the, I don't know, decibel defense. Uh, I, I forgot how they're called, but basically, you know, very, very heavy duty sound blockers. And also things like, uh, you know, eye masks and uh, you can stack them. I mean, you can put, <laughs> I don't know, that sounds so much like biohacking. You can stack these interventions. You can stack earplugs. <laughs> And add to them decibel defense and you'll get 30 decibels less together with 30 decibels for a total of 60 decibels less. And, you know, frankly, it actually makes a difference. You know, if uh, if you go to a place like uh, like the BART, uh, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, you know, it does go all the way to something like 100 decibels. And it's a decent sound on top of that. It's pretty horrifying. So, you know, bring it down to like 70 decibels makes it totally fine, totally tolerable, just like no pain or suffering associated with it, but it's still distracting. Stack another 30 decibel reduction and, oh, you could actually meditate very peacefully and be totally fine in, uh, in the part that way. No ear damage or any sort. Anyway, silence is, is really important. Um, I mean, there is this uh, really fantastic uh, meditation teacher and scientist, uh, Shenzhen Yong, uh, that uh, I've been consuming a lot of his lectures recently. He has like a lot of really, really interesting videos on YouTube. One of the most wholesome contents you could possibly consume in, in YouTube is my, uh, my assessment. Very helpful, I think, for, for mental health and happiness and understanding consciousness. And, uh, you know, one of the things that he talks about among many, <laughs> is uh, this technique of focusing on silence, which is that, um, you know, oftentimes uh, during the day, you know, you may feel overwhelmed with sensory input, especially if you, you know, have something like mild autism or OCD or something like that. Yeah, it can be pretty, pretty overwhelming and, and, and uh, hard to deal with. But uh, basically what he says is that in any of those situations, you can usually find some aspect of your experience that is in a restful state, such as, for example, you know, dark visual field or kind of these like dark, tactile, peaceful feel or, you know, silence in the auditory field. And, you know, just find something that is kind of in, in rest mode and focus on it and then try to slowly spread that silence elsewhere and uh, you know at first this is going to be difficult but you know there's kind of like this exponential progression the more you do it uh, the more hours you invest in it and uh, you know advanced meditators you know they could probably be at a rave at you know 120 decibels or something horrible like that 
in terms of like you know long-term damage to, to your sensory systems um, and still you know be able to find some aspect of their experience that is silent and then in a sense tune into it so it could potentially also be very helpful for pain management and things like that um, for the rest of us who are not advanced advanced meditators uh, actually I think that starting in a very silent condition you know like doing that type of meditation in a very you know silent sensor sensorily deprived environment is probably going to you know maximize your chances of developing this uh, this uh, skill as quickly as possible like basically you need a, a nucleation factor of, of silence and I think under those conditions uh, you'll make the most progress at the beginning at the very least now uh, silence is also super fascinating because in a, in an interview recently that we did with somebody who <laughs> who, who has been doing a uh, no uh, he did a couple of years ago I believe but basically uh, you know Leo Gura did a uh, 30 days or 25 days of daily 5-MeO DMT experiences and he had extremely bizarre experience you know states of consciousness as a consequence and derealization and all sorts of things well uh, somebody uh, messaged me recently. You know, these like very, very nice, like older guy um, with like 30 years of meditation experience and uh, quite a smart dude. Yeah, pre I, I really like him a lot. And uh, uh, he did a six months daily 5-MeO DMT experiment. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, he didn't go crazy or anything. He didn't have this derealization or anything like that. But basically, he was saying that uh, the 5-MeO DMT world, there's basically a an infinite number of kind of silent states that you can experience. It's like, you know, once in a while he would experience kind of a perfect peace, which maybe is kind of the the bodily silence component. And sometimes he would experience perfect kind of a void and uh, and blackness. And that might be kind of a, you know, a high dimensional visual field silence. And then sometimes he would actually experience the, 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 the sensory quality of auditory silence, just encompassing everything with, so in a sense, yeah, perhaps 5-MeO DMT is almost, almost kind of, you know, helping you tune into these high dimensional silence experiences and then annealing into them, which, you know, I suspect might actually be kind of good for your nervous system if you do it right, um, which is a big caveat. You know, I'm, there's tons of ways of doing 5-MeO DMT in highly traumatizing ways. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole topic. Okay, but today we're going to talk about how to discuss, how to develop a language for talking about, you know, these exotic high energy states of consciousness. And um, uh, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to preface this by, by saying that this is actually meant as a almost kind of a preamble is a is a is an introduction to another talk I'm going to be making, which is going to be about consciousness in digital computers, whether digital computers can or cannot be conscious. That's a big topic. I'm sure <laughs> there's going to be a lot of feelings. I don't know, maybe some crying. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see about that. But <laughs> but there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, let's say um, it's a load-bearing belief. You know, a lot of people, especially in my community, it's a load-bearing belief that digital computers can wake up if uh, you program them correctly and you scale them correctly. And uh, um Maybe I have bad news <laughs> for you or good news, depending on how you look at it. Uh, but um, uh, the thing is that, you know, for the most part, talking about psychedelic evidence <laughs> on a topic like can digital computers wake up? 
most people will just completely and utterly dismiss it. You know, it's like, oh, you were just tripping out, man. Like, like, what are you talking about? Like, no, like the sensations you're talking about from psychedelia have absolutely no bearing on the discussion between physicalism and functionalism with these, these like highly technical, philosophical and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, scientific discussion. Uh, but actually, <laughs> I do believe that developing a really good language to talk about psychedelic experiences will, in fact, have a lot of bearings on questions like digital sentience. Uh, but for that, I've got to, in some sense, do the hard work of convincing you <laughs> that there is actually a rational way to talk about these things, which is uh, so difficult and so many people fail at it. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's quite, a, quite a difficult, high-level task. So anyway, um, I'll also mention uh, another thing is that, um, um, you know, chances are I will not say anything insightful, but... What I aim to do in these videos is always aim to say a meaningful, non-trivial thing about the topic that hopefully you haven't heard elsewhere and you haven't thought before because it's, you know, something I've thought very deeply about and I've talked with my colleagues and, you know, I'm really trying to kind of offer you the, you know, fruits of a lot of thought and, and insight and uh, hopefully you can see it from that perspective. It's possible. I will still fail to say anything meaningful, but uh, but uh, the spirit of it is to actually add to the conversation. Uh, a, a phrase I recently used is that it's true that we are just barely scratching the surface of you know the field of consciousness, but hopefully we're scratching the surface in such a way that it's making tiny dents. You know, so it's not a completely ineffective scratch. You know, that's. <laughs> It's a non-zero progress, you know. That is that is the aim that I'm making. I'm uh, I'm, I'm I'm putting here. Okay, so let's get on to the topic. So, uh, 2016 or so, uh, wrote an article called "Algorithmic Reduction of Psychedelic States of Consciousness," which is about, you know, in psychedelia, there's this zoo of effects, and if you look at a place like you know Psychonaut Wiki, uh, the effect index, you will see like you know, it used to be like. 50 back then, but I'm sure like now is like hundreds of like effects and uh, each of them seems kind of unique and special and, you know, in some sense kind of irreducible. Uh, uh, so, so back then I thought, well, it's very unlikely that, you know, in some sense the psychedelic will contain in, in it or, you know, there's like that many extremely diverse processes that get triggered by the same molecule. So it's more likely and, you know, from a parsimony point of view, from an Occam's razor point of view, more likely that we might be able to, in a sense, try to re-derive the zoo of psychedelic effects just based on a few basic effects put together and then looking at how they can interact with one another such that you generate all of that emergent complexity. And I think that approach is really good. I called it algorithmic reduction to distinguish it from atomistic reduction, which is just, you know, trying to in some sense, arrive at models that are just made of, you know, you know, particles and forces. Like, you don't need to assume an ontology in order to make algorithmic reductions. They leave at Mars levels, uh, at the algorithmic level of analysis of Mars levels of analysis, which uh, it's its own thing. But basically, it's not necessary to postulate that the universe is made of atoms or something like that in order to make fruitful algorithmic reductions. And I think that's uh, important to point out. 
that uh, whatever the metaphysics may be, you can still nonetheless make progress by algorithmically reducing phenomena. And I think that's more or less what has happened in physics, you know, over and over again, that something looked very confusing and people started proposing, you know, fundamental features and effects that, you know, stacked together, st stacked, you know, biohacking again <laughs> in physics. <laughs> anyway, stacked together these effects, you will get the phenomena that uh, is emergent and interesting that you're very puzzled about. So back then, I basically talked about, uh, you know, tracer effects. I've talked about tracer effects. You know, you move your hand around and you see kind of like copies laying around or you see kind of replays of it. It's kind of like you move your hand and you see a replay of it and like kind of it keeps going and so on. So that's that's one of them. We have a tracer tool, actually, if you if you if you uh, experiment with a these uh, altered states of consciousness, whether through meditation or psychedelics, I definitely encourage you to take a look at the tracer tool and try to replicate the traces that you're seeing to contribute to science. Link in the description. I don't know. It would be nice if more people started, you know, sending data points uh, so that we can actually make progress in that direction. But basically, the tracer tool um, is getting at the, the tracer effects, which uh, seem to me very much of a, a, a basic, basic effect. But th then I also talked about um, basically the, these other things which are uh, drifting, which is like you, you, you see a face or something and then kind of the, the eyes kind of like move around a little bit or, or the color of an object kind of like goes outside of the object or the edges of an object kind of like get blended with the objects outside of it and things like that. So basically you can think of drifting as kind of a, um, uh, the, the local binding connections that bring together the different features of a phenomenal object basically become a little bit more loosely connected and start to, you know, interface with their immediate environment and things like that. So, so you get kind of these like fuzzy boundaries around things. And uh, so that's another effect. Uh, I also talked about um, pareidolia, which is, you know, you, you look at a tree and you start seeing faces and things like that. And also, you know, enhanced symmetry detection. I also called it uh, lowering the symmetry detection threshold. Um, which is its own, you know, fascinating set of effects, very connected with uh, valence and pleasure and uh, stress and so on. Um, and uh, absolutely, you know, you look at a wall or something like that and you will, oh my gosh, yes, absolutely. You will see kind of these tessellations happen, these clusters of tessellations. And uh, they will, this kind of like this beating process of your attention that try to harmonize the diff different tessellations. And then you get like big clusters and eventually you get the entirety of the visual field kind of resonating in the same, in the same way with the same wallpaper symmetry group and so on, you know? So that's another, I thought at the time, prime effect. Now it's been four years, maybe it might be more than four years. Uh, we've had way many more discussions, have read way, way many more papers, you know, really, I thought, I think it's a, it was a good approach at the time. Now I think that we can probably actually reduce these four effects to even more fundamental effects. And that is something I did talk about in that article. I also talked about in hyperbolic geometry of DMT experiences, but I didn't go into, you know, very deep detail into what could be a further algorithmic reduction of those, you know, like four fundamental effects. And um, I'm not going to exactly do that today, but I will get close. I will basically talk about kind of like a, another paradigm for how to discuss these crazy psychedelic effects <laughs> that you that you experience. Okay, so that is, uh, yeah, kind of there. And uh, I, I should also mention that I think uh, in the debate between functionalism and physicalism, which I will get to in, in the next video, um, 
you know, it also has a, a lot of bearings on, on how you interpret a psychedelic experience. You know, if you talk uh, to a computer science major, researcher in AI or something like that, they're having a, a trip, you know, a, a trip. They, they might uh, talk in the language of something like, oh, I'm experiencing a kind of stack overflow or, or I'm experiencing, you know, new types of sorting algorithms for, you know, ranking, you know, qualities of my experience. Uh, and they might talk in that language. Uh, or for example, they might discuss like, I'm experiencing a new type of data structure. And that's totally valid and apps, you know, if that happens, it's important to point out. But um, what I wanna, when I wanna say here is that uh, I don't believe that you can actually reconstruct the low level effects with that language itself. You need a different paradigm, but as a high level effect, you can indeed experience all these other, you know, computer science properties like new sorting algorithms or, you know, I'm experiencing a new type of heap allocation <laughs> or a linked list in the way my perception is organized. Yeah, that absolutely happens, especially if those are, you know, thought forms that you have trained before. I mean, psychedelics to a large extent build on your previous knowledge. Uh, you manipulate and you bring together thought forms that were pre-existing in your, you know, mental field and uh, and make them interact and have, you know, I don't know, like sex, intercourse, uh, friendships, <laughs> uh, social circles and have them interact. And yeah, you get like new interesting things. Um, but I do not believe that you can actually get the low level phenomena that underlie all of that high level phenomena just based on, you know, computer science terms. You actually need something else, which is far more related to physics. Okay, so how do you, let's say, verify what I'm going to talk about today? Uh, you know, I actually say you should be really serious and deliberate about studying these states of consciousness. I, I don't think the approach of taking, you know, LSD, 2CB and mushrooms and going to a Spangle concert uh, or a rave or something like that is going to be the optimal environment for, you know, really delving into the nature of consciousness. You will get very bizarre and interesting effects, but, you know, it's just like very loud and distracting and, you know, worrisome at times and like the music and the intensity can destroy fine level information. So, uh, and maybe that's therapeutic for some people and like, sure, it can be really fun. It can also be terrifying. My suggestion, very frankly, is, you know, do as much research as you can, not only in terms of like the effects of the substance, which is, you know, obviously you should do that. And, you know, the pharmacology and the interactions and so on, you know, you should ideally, you know, meditate quite a bit before doing an experience, take it really seriously, um, think very deeply about a scientific topic that you're trying to work out or, you know, the edges of your understanding, try to load up all your, all those like, you know, mental constructs and thought forms that, uh, that, uh, really enrich your mental life. And, um, and then take it very seriously. And, and basically I would suggest something along the lines of basically laying on your bed or on the floor of a bathroom or something like that with like, actually eye shades and, uh, and earplugs and uh, and decibel defense and and, and uh, maybe music. Music is fine, but eye shades is important. And uh, basically as comfortable as possible, but also as sensorily deprived as possible so that you can actually pay close attention 
to the phenomena that happens. Uh, have a notebook right next to you or a recording or something like that. And take this seriously. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> These are like exotic, potentially, you know, truly novel physical low level effects that are going on in your in your in your brain and consciousness and uh they're so poorly understood we really need more you know rational smart people actually taking this seriously and actually paying attention to these things <laughs> so i compel you really do so and you know in this context i want to plug in a sense the fact that uh, we're about to publish, maybe it's already published by the time this video is out, but we're about to publish a guide for how to write a high quality trip report that is actually useful for science, uh, both in QRI, gonna be cross posted in quality computing. And uh, I also recommend reading that way before you embark on a, on a psychedelic state of consciousness uh, to maximize the chances of actually, you know, helping the world and helping yourself um, with this process. Okay, so let's say that you take 100 micrograms of LSD, you have your, you know, you're in the bed, you have eye shades and earplugs, maybe even, well, definitely a cedar, you know, you, you don't know what could happen, you know, there's like psychotic states, very uncomfortable states, you don't know what could happen. I, even if you're experienced, I still think it makes sense to have a cedar, maybe in a different room, but it doesn't matter, but like, Somebody who will prevent you from wandering into the streets. Basically, <laughs> it's it's uh, is what I'm uh, what I'm advocating for. And uh, you know, very pragmatically, I don't I know that probably in the um, psychonaut community, I don't think this would be very appreciated. This suggestion, especially the more spiritual side of it. But pragmatically, I think that something like pre-dosing several hours late uh, earlier, maybe two hours up to four hours earlier. Uh, a low dose of something like Fenibut, uh could be really helpful, especially if you are anxiety prone. Now, Fenibut is, uh causes horrible addiction and uh, withdrawal, so it's something to be very careful with. But uh, I mean, yeah, I mean psychedelics do pr produce a lot of like body load and uh, and uh, you know vaso vasoconstriction, and it can be unpleasant and and if that becomes the focus of your experience or like the amplification of some chronic pain that you have i'm not sure you're really optimizing the experience for 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 the benefit of your understanding and so on so uh honestly yeah pre-dose is something like 300 milligrams which is a pretty low dose relative to like recreational dose of anybut but it will just take the F edge off and it will allow you to focus on the more trippy psychedelic stuff. I mean, in higher dosages, it's going to be a trip killer or something like that. It's going to be more disorienting and stuff. But at a lows like that, it, I think, will actually be helpful. And that's uh, what I have been hearing from a lot of people. So, uh, yeah, a lot of people actually say that they don't trip anymore without, like, you know, a tiny bit of any but before or something like that. And Honestly, that sounds rational. <laughs> that sounds the way to go. <laughs> There's no need to like overstress the body for for something like this. I, I don't. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't. I don't know why people are so masochistic or ah, whatever. Doesn't matter. We're rational psychonauts here, you guys. We we want to actually do this right. It doesn't matter if this is a, an addictive drug. Let's use it, you know, sensibly. Okay, so um, that is going on. Okay, so. 
things that you will probably notice uh, for sure is, you know, tracer effects uh, looping. You know, uh, I have this article and video about like the nature of time, phenomenal time, and uh, basically looping and uh, and kind of like synthesizer distortions where basically <laughs> uh, all of your experience, there's kind of like a, a, a source of like signals in your experience, which will probably be replaying things that you've been, like you have like thought about uh, recently or you have heard. Um, kind of like loops and things like that. And at, at first, the loops will probably be basically disorienting and misaligned. Like there might be like visual loops and auditory loops and tactile loops that are kind of disconnected. But over time, um, there's this annealing process where they will start to synchronize. And eventually you might have kind of this multimodal integration where the entirety of your experience is looping in crazy ways. Now, if you know about the pseudo time arrow, if you know about how phenomenal time is encoded, you know, in these patterns of looping and tracing, you can actually use that information to your advantage in order to actually uh, basically transform these loops into, for example, moments of eternity or time branching or, um, or timelessness. You can kind of like loop it, you can take the loop and then concentrate all the arrows towards the center and, uh, and arrive, at, arrive at like moments of eternity, which are in some sense like probably more pleasant and probably more therapeutic than just being stuck in a loop, so to speak. Uh, and definitely this is an annealing process. So it's gonna take a little bit, you know, if you're kind of disoriented with the loops and so on, give it like a couple minutes of like kind of like meditating or like reshaping the loops and uh, you will see very interesting and uh, uh, new effects. Uh, other things that I've talked about is like symmetry for sure. Like, um, so basically, uh, in our model, one of the things is that basically psychedelics change the average synaptic length of communication between your neurons. Um, and um, I talked a lot about this in, in the in the video about like, you know, a rational analysis at last for 5-MeO-DMT, where basically I say that regular DMT feels like these like tiny clusters of synchrony that, 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 that are basically competing for your attention and and, uh, and and making coalitions. And eventually you have kind of these like patches of synchrony that are like trying to harmonize with each other. But because there's kind of like a center of gravity for each of those patches of synchrony and uh, it's not the entirety of your experience. So on regular DMT, what ends up happening is you have these competing patches of symmetry that are trying to organize into these, you know, complex shapes. And because the size of it, the size or the center of gravity for each of these patterns of synchrony is not that large, uh, it's very coalition-based, and it's uh, kind of an evolutionary process, and uh, you rarely get complete coherence. And even if you get complete coherence, it's still going to be made of kind of these like different resonating patches. And uh, and that's why, you know, you get this extraordinary, you know, complexity and information content. And, uh, and, uh, and on 5-MeO-DMT, on the other hand, Basically, it seems like you're creating these kind of quote-unquote universal field where actually any two, you could say, like oscillators in your nervous system actually can synchronize with one another. So there's a, an annealing process that is really fast at the onset of a 5-MeO-DMT where like things are kind of like energized and they quickly that synchronize. And then like the entirety of your field of awareness is basically pulsating in synchrony at something probably in the order of like 30 to 40 hertz, uh, which you can estimate using strobe lights and seeing what colors, what uh, frequencies actually resonate with it. Uh, and, uh, and that is kind of an integrated field because it's all synchronized 
and I, basically, I think that's more therapeutic. It's also way higher valence. Uh, way it feels more blissful. Uh, the process to get there can be pretty unpleasant. I think there's like hacks to make it also extremely extremely pleasant, especially with a titration of dose and so on. But what I want to point out is that there is this basically kind of duality between temporal synchronization and patterns of visual symmetry or, you know, sensory symmetry. Uh, something that happens is that when you actually get synchronization of oscillators, that generates a kind of a subfield of your experience and it will show the harmonics of that subfield. So just to, to give you an example, like if you have a, if you're, this is on a different substance, but uh, let's say LSD or something like that. If, you, if you're creating this topologically shielded subspace, um, uh, which is like based on synchrony, it is like finely tuned, you know, synchronized oscillators uh, implementing, you know, your, this part of your visual field, you will basically see the harmonics of it. In this case, you know, at the top, it might be these like four things. Here below, it might be like, I don't know, like eight. Yeah, like eight. Uh, and, you know, this is a, a cylinder structure, so we'll also get kind of these harmonics. So something that Stephen Lehar has pointed out for, I don't know, like 30 years, that guy, uh, he, he deserves so much recognition. <laughs> I'm so, so unhappy about how the uh, academia actually treated uh, Stephen Lehar because his papers are fantastic and I ac absolutely recommend uh, reading them. And uh, the guy is brilliant and really funny. Um, and... Uh, and he points out that basically all of these kind of like artistic, you know, symmetries correspond usually with the harmonics of the internal representations of our experience. And uh, I think that's something that you can 100% verify on psychedelics. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Don't believe me? <laughs> Try it yourself. <laughs> Pay attention to the harmonics of, of synchronized subfields. It happens. <laughs> Just that's what it is. <laughs> okay, so... Um, that's kind of a, yeah, synchrony. There's definitely also boundary dissolution effects. And that's also based on basically synchronization. That usually, uh, let's say how you represent the self-other divide inside your inner world simulation is based on, hey, like this construct of the self has kind of its own way of oscillating that is like at a slightly different frequency and in some sense like separated well there's a there's a rabbit hole in there but like basically separated from like the oscillators that you use to represent somebody else of course if you fall in love you know with somebody uh your internal representation of yourself and the other person may actually synchronize and there's this feeling of boundary dissolution uh which is yeah kind of like a, a deep kind of you know making love with some other other people you know experientially and of course if both if it's reciprocated you know, the body language and so on will actually establish a kind of interpersonal resonance, which, yeah, I think like, uh, and, and, you know, in extreme cases, you could actually probably detect the artifacts of this, meaning that the harmonics I was talking about, you can probably experience it when you're in love with somebody, you can actually feel the harmonics of the res interpersonal resonance, which is <laughs> its own crazy thing. And uh, I don't think anybody has reported that, but I, I believe that happens. Uh, I mean, for example, MDMA, that also happens quite a, quite a bit, especially interpersonal resonance. With something like LSD, you get that type of, you know, uh, synchronization with other weird things. You can get it with an object. You can get it with like a sound. So it is kind of like merging your sense of self with arbitrary things around you. And, you know, with 5-MeO-DMT, because everything becomes synchronized and coherent, 
it is the complete elimination of internal boundaries and it feels like indeed you're all one with everything because it's all this unified field in your own internal conscious experience doesn't necessarily mean you're actually merging with you know the entirety of the cosmos but you're definitely mer in some sense merging or eliminating internal boundaries within your own experience and uh, uh lsd and other psychedelics but let, let's talk about lsd i think that in terms of like clusters of synchrony, it basically stands somewhere in between DMT, which is like tiny clusters that are competing and very fast, very high frequency, and 5-MeO DMT, which is this huge experience wide clusters. LSD is kind of in the middle. So you get like these large patches, sometimes like encompassing like more than half of your experience. And they do kind of compete with each other, but the competition is more kind of a tilted toward like merging as opposed to kind of this adversarial process. But it is difficult to actually achieve complete coherence on LSD, especially if you don't have like some serious like meditation practice already, which would actually make that easier. But basically, complete coherence on LSD is not stable. And I believe it's because the kind of center of mass or the, the, uh, the um, scope of synchronization is just not that large. It doesn't encompass the entirety of your experience. So, oh, and uh, also I would like to mention that they're like combining drugs. If you combine LSD and DMT, then you will actually get kind of the superposition of those two kind of uh, synchronization strategies. And that will give rise to its own different state, which has its own emergent properties, but it's, and it's different, is different than either. It's not just intensified DMT or intensified LSD. It's its own thing. Uh, that's also a fascinating thing. Uh, okay. So all of that is kind of things that I've talked about before. And uh, I'm, I'm almost kind of self-conscious that I'm... <laughs> well, hopefully they're explaining it in a simpler way than before as this process continues. But uh, I know it's half an hour in. But okay, finally, let's talk about completely new content, which is, I think, like a, a, a very fruitful paradigm to basically talk about uh, psychedelic experience is in terms of what I might describe as a self intersecting field so um and there's there's a lot of interesting phenomena here but basically usually there's kind of this balance between how quickly experience is dissipating and how quickly experience is building up and in a normal everyday state you know the the balance ends up being in, in a place that basically the emergent geometry of your experience is roughly 2.5d um, and, uh, and it's kind of like very adaptive, you know, and, uh, and there's like basically like cybernetic processes that keep the energy range, the, you know, average amount of activation roughly within certain band, but on psychedelics, you're disrupting that. And, you know, from a physics analogy, you're kind of like exploring a different level of the Hamiltonian, meaning that the average energy is just going to be higher. Now that energy may manifest in terms of the, you know, sensory quality or cognitive intensity or a sense of space and so on. But the thing is, like, it's almost kind of the this you know physical principle that energy doesn't create it or or destruct it, um, or destroyed on something like LSD. That uh, it's kind of true as well, you know, because you're achieving kind of a different homeostatic level. The energy range will roughly be dependent on the dose. Uh, so you can sure with that tension, you can make most of the energy be concentrated in you know visual field or bodily tactile sensations or something like that. But the, the, the point is that the average energy, if you aggregate the intensity of each of these channels, 
it will be roughly constant throughout the trip. I mean, modulo some other property. I mean, there are spikes of energy, but you know, the, the weighted average over something like two, a two minute period or maybe three minute period will be pretty constant on a given period, on a period of time, you know, while the LSD intensity is roughly the same. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, psychedelics will increase, you know, what part of the Hamiltonian you're exploring. Um, and you can basically think of these as kind of a slightly, slightly hyperbolic sheet. So like rather than the world sheet, basically this depth map of your experience, having this kind of 2.5D structure, on psychedelics, you will have kind of this curved sheet, kind of this curved sheet of experience. It's going to be pretty wrinkly. And uh, and uh, basically, uh, this kind of like sheet, I mean, this is a Euclidean sheet, you know. I, I wish they, they would sell uh, hyperbolic hyperbolic blankets. I actually think there would be a really good uses for that, especially for parties and things like that. Excuse me for a second. <coughs> um, uh, sorry, sorry. But, uh, but yeah, basically, you know, by kind of uh, creating folds here, I'm kind of uh, exemplifying it. And, uh, and basically, a lot of field properties actually arise on, on psychedelics. Now, again, I don't think this is like, well, I mean, maybe it is a literal physical field. I mean, ultimately it is. But the geometry, I think it's like emergent out of these like basically clusters of synchrony, uh, computing clusters of synchrony. And... <clears throat> It's kind of like your visual field rather than being, you know, kind of like this flat or 2.5D structure. It will have kind of these like wrinkle properties. Um, and, you know, a lot of like field properties can be experienced on psychedelics. So you may experience, for example, like tensing, like the, the field is going to be tense in some, in some moments. Parts of the field can be tensed. You, you may also experience basically kind of tensing and relaxation. Uh, also, different types of buzzing. So the, the, the sheet can kind of like wrinkle in particular ways. And if it, it wrinkles in particular way in a large enough like surface area of it, that will have kind of its own frequency. And, uh, and it will kind of like entrain other parts of the sheet. And that, that's kind of like the process where like your visual field develops these symmetries and they um, synchronize and you get like, you know, a full tessellation in the entirety of your visual field. Yeah, that's kind of like these little patches of like different particular frequency buzzing kind of entrain the whole thing. And in the end, you get, yeah, this tessellation. But the crazy things is that, you know, all of these tessellations that happen, they're not entirely flat. They always have kind of a three-dimensional component, a depth a depth to them. And, uh, and in that sense, that's also kind of a signature of it being a hyperbolic sheet, you know, that you're not experiencing perfectly flat surfaces. Well, if you are, Oftentimes the wrinkling is going to happen elsewhere, just as if you're trying to flatten a hyperbolic surface, that's something that happens. Uh, so, okay, yeah, you get kind of like that wrinkling. Um, you also absolutely get things like twisting, you know, uh, twisting and, uh, and you can also get kind of those like symmetrical uh, buzzing, but in polar coordinates all of a sudden. So like rather than it being like, you know, in a surface, uh, you know, kind of this twisting. The twisting here can also be kind of symmetrical and that itself will generate its own type of like resonance and entrainment. And you can arrive at something that feels like this like spiral that is actually fractal because it's kind of this polar. And that's like a thing what underlies uh, <clears throat> form constants and, uh, you know, Kuvler constants and, and things like that. 
Although I believe, <laughs> sorry if I'm being arrogant, but I'm adding way more detail than any of those theories, uh, you know, are explaining. And plus they're functionalists and anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, we can go way further than that by, by talking in the kind of language that I'm uh, outlining, outlining here. Um, absolutely. You also have field properties like curling. Again, that's kind of like patches of it or kind of like twisting. You also have divergence. Uh, because you, you, par parts of the field can curl, uh, can you can form vortices, uh, vortex, and also you can get anti-vortex. And I think like a lot of the ineffability of psychedelic states of consciousness have to do with like generating anti-vortex in your experiential field. And that is where the attention field lines are converging in two directions. And then where they meet, they diverge. So those are very weird phenomenal objects because they don't, have a center of attention it's kind of this weird dwell and it feels like you're contracting and expanding at the same time and i think like that's uh you know an anti-vortex i think is a lot of the what underlies a lot of kind of these uh at least in meditation and lsd it is kind of boundary dissolution with the with the cosmos you're kind of like simultaneously kind of uh pushing in one direction but also moving towards infinity at the same time and you can have lots of those uh depending on the dose and the intensity um, <clears throat> oh yeah, there's this uh, other fascinating thing, which is, uh, I love uh, this term my sister recently made a, made me aware of, which is a, a chronotopic, which is, uh, I believe in, in, the, in film uh, especially, which is basically the organization of events in space and time. And, you know, different films that have like very different ways of, you know, exposing uh, what happens in space and time. Every, I think I'm halfway through, but I basically I'm seeing this movie called uh, Mind Games and the introduction. If you, if, I don't even think you need to watch the whole movie. Like just watch the first like four minutes or five minutes. There's a extremely interesting way of doing like a chronotopic organization of events in space and time in that beginning uh, stage. And, you know, there's an, a sober, you know, medium of thought, the way in which we organize events in space and time in psychedelic states of consciousness that changes and is basically like you're using this hyperbolic sheet to encode different things that are happening or have happened even in your lifetime and so on. And different sections of it will encode, they will have kind of like their own space-time signature. Now, these are representations because, of course, the entirety of the experience is happening at once anyway <laughs> which is why you know the feeling of passage of time is an illusion and the pseudo time arrow and you know that whole rabbit hole but you know as an, a whole experience yes you do represent the unfolding of causality in space and time and in some sense processing trauma on psychedelics is a little bit easier because you can actually in a sense uh, load up all of these different components of a situation. Scott Alexander recently wrote about this, and we also have a bunch of content on that about how you can use neural annealing to treat trauma. It's a whole topic as well. But the point is that uh, the chronotopic organization of uh, events in space and time in, in a psychedelic state can be really complex. So you can have kind of like, like, hey, here is me when I was a five-year-old. Here is me in what I believe is the future. Here's like various branches of what could happen. And you're seeing all of that at once. And, uh, you know, sometimes like they may also kind of like start resonating with one another or like merging or unifying. And yeah, all of those like interesting field effects will also happen. And sometimes that actually helps in the processing or the, the thinking process. 
sometimes it's detrimental. I mean, like these artifacts of perception, it's kind of this confusion that like, you know, it's not the semantic content necessarily that is actually dictating how this world sheet is evolving. It's more the math of the field-like behavior of the psychedelic state. <laughs> That's actually how, uh, what is dictating how this, uh, this uh, sheet is evolving over time, this, uh, this uh, field. You can also experience dissonance. Uh, well, in terms of like signatures of unpleasant states, I mean, like most people will describe a psychedelic st state as like highly tense. That's a very typical description. And indeed, a lot of your sensory field will be very tense. And I think like that's a signature of high energy. Um, you will also experience kind of feelings of resistance. And, uh, you know, there's, a, I think, a lot of wisdom uh, in Shenzhen Young's uh, idea that like suffering uh, basically is uh, kind of a combination of like pain times energy times resistance. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, basically, that's also where the wisdom of like don't resist the psychedelic state comes from. Because if you resist it, Basically, that itself will be kind of like micro experiential moments of suffering. And uh, that's something that you want to avoid. So don't resist, you know, the tension, don't uh, the the pain or the pressure. Just kind of like let it happen and dissipate. And you will see that basically the, the field of your experience will kind of like self-organize in a way so as to dissipate the tension, which is also something you can train on meditation. It's probably one of the best instructions that you can uh, practice. It's kind of a... Uh, dissolving micro tensions in your experiential field. Um, I mean, talking about that, you will realize that also a lot of like the thinking process in and of itself is based on information sensitive gradients of discomfort. <laughs> and in some sense, you cannot actually have thoughts without like at least a modicum of, of discomfort. You can have a lot of totally blissful experiences or experiences that are on net totally positive valence. But this, you know, micro experiences of tension and discomfort and dissonance encode a lot of information and that's uh difficult to uh difficult to do away with without also getting rid of uh of the thinking process in and of itself now of course maybe from the point of view of maximizing the therapeutic value uh actually focusing on the positives makes sense similar to the instruction of fo focusing on silence so you also experience feelings of relaxation which I would describe as pleasant. They're one of the signatures of positive valence. Release, you know, the feeling of release. You know, in Buddhism, they say, you know, the first noble truth, you know, life is suffering, but also the, there is the cessation of suffering. It's almost kind of, you know, these feelings of tension and stress is a suffering or maybe a building block of the suffering. It's definitely not the whole story. And then there's the, the feeling of relaxation. Ah, and that is blissful and that is pleasant and then there's also the the rate at which the relaxation is happening so there's almost kind of a, a power component from a physical units point of view and then you get things such as well there's maybe a unit for positive valence and that's a whole topic that i'm <laughs> very deeply exploring right now um and uh also uh, another signature of very positive valence is resonance so you get this kind of a soliton like experiences where a component of your visual or experiential field enters in resonance um, and that can store well it will have its own signature uh, it's a signature of consonance dissonance and noise and that itself will encode a valence and that's something you can study very carefully and again <laughs> if you're a physicist or mathematician or just somebody smart and interested in these topics please focus like when you experience this sense of resonance focus on the consonance and dissonance and noises signatures of it 
to verify and maybe write a blog post and tell us if it's true. But I'm pretty convinced that actually that is more or less uh, one of the signatures of, of valence here. Uh, and yeah, a lot of uh, field behavior in that domain. There's also this interplay between expansion and contraction um, that the field is experiencing all the time on, on a psychedelic state. Um, and as a consequence, you actually get these fascinating energy minimizing configurations. So that's why you get a ton of minimal surfaces. You know, like when you take a wire that is kind of like weirdly shaped and then you submerge it in soapy water and you get kind of this, uh, the surface of a, of a uh, soap bubble in that shape, the shape of that will basically be its lower, lower energies, the lowest energy configuration that connects with the boundary condition that is basically the shape of the wire. And that shape will be basically minimizing the energy and also as a consequence, minimizing the surface of, of it, uh, surface minimization. And, uh, you know, there's like a lot of math about it. And I'm pretty convinced that, that it's a huge component of psychedelic experiences. And, you know, the crazy, beautiful hyperbolic architecture that you can basically construct, whether it's in DMT or LSD or 2CB or whatnot, will be often saturated with these crazy energy and surface minimization configurations. That's uh, something for, for, for a physicist to, to take a close look at. The, the next Feynman, <laughs> please, you know, take LSD in these uh, conditions and, uh, and study the equations of this energy minimization effect. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's something that, uh, yeah, have been verified by a number of people. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not just N of one. And if you look carefully at a lot of psychedelic replications, you will see a ton of energy minimization phenomena also, which is, uh, and it's connected with the free energy principle and predict prediction coding. Again, all of those are pieces of the puzzle. They're not the full story, but it's uh, as an important component. Um, uh, another thing to point out is that the semantic content of the experience will be highly related with the properties of the field. So uh, let's say that there's like a very heavy topic that you're trying to process. <laughs> um, if it's really heavy, you know, it will actually perhaps create such tension in this field so as to become a kind of black hole. And, and yeah, you can actually kind of simulate quasi, you know, quasi physical simulations of something like, you know, Einstein's um, equations of general relativity. I mean, not, I'm not saying that, you know, the psychedelic experience has anything to do with gravity. No, no, no. But some of those equations can be emulated with a field like behavior in some configurations within some parameter ranges such that, yeah, you can kind of visualize an experience and feel, you know, interlock like orbits and things like that, or the effect of a very intense black hole. And also, you know, the curvature of the field will be uh, proportional to kind of the, how tense it feels. And uh, oftentimes that will encode like emotionally charged objects um, and, and, and uh, properties of, of thought and events that happen in your life. So it's kind of crazy you know, that you're using these field properties in order to process, you know, emotional content. It's, it's fascinating. But, you know, once you, you notice, uh, it's pretty obvious that's happening. But most people never notice. You know, most people get just caught up in the semantic content. They come back from, from the trip 
and all they have to report is the semantic content, not the field-like properties of the experience, which is actually where the nectar uh, is uh, when it comes to advancing science in this domain. Um, also, turbulent flow. You will see a lot of turbulent flow in this uh, in this sheet. I mean, especially when you relax and things like that, you will see kind of a ripples of, of different uh, spatio-temporal frequencies kind of a, a cascade into smaller, well, higher frequencies, like smaller uh, eddies and so on. And that's a good energy dissipation. Pro There's like a whole lot of uh, stuff to talk about and uh, actually don't want to get too, too much into it um, right now. Um, another huge topic is the dimensionality of the experience. And, and here's a trade-off. There's basically a trade-off between the hyperbolicity, basically how saddled the uh, experiential field is, how curved it is, and how high dimensional it is. Because you can trade one for the other. And actually, I think that in these kind of higher levels of the Hamiltonian of a conscious experience, most of things are either high dimensional or hyperbolic. And it's kind of one or the other. And uh, there's going to be patches. Some of those are high dimensional, some of those are hyperbolic. But uh, if you know what to do, if you know what to focus on, you can actually, uh, a meditation that I would recommend, and I think is probably very, very, very good for you, is uh, meditate on high dimensions. Basically, try to reward the parts of the field that are high dimensional so that there is more of it uh, oh gosh and then like crazy things will happen really crazy things so one of the signatures of high dimensionality in consciousness is the coupling or synchronization between sensory modalities so uh as i was saying at, at the beginning you can have a kind of these looping effects that happen only in the visual field or only in the auditory field or tactile field you know but if you anneal them so that they start to synchronize, you can create these unified field that contains multimodal representations that are coherent. I talked a little bit about this in, in the, the other video called Why Does DMT Feel So Real? And one of the reasons is because DMT creates these high-dimensional, multimodally coherent uh, experiences. And uh, that is very real. It feels very real. Uh, on LSD, it's not automatic, but uh, it happens stochastically at random. But if you know what to look for, you can meditate and basically focus on that and kind of weave together a high dimensional uh, nucleation of your field and then propagate it elsewhere uh, and then kind of converge on that high dimensional space and then enter in a state of resonance in it. That is amazing. That's a fascinating process to undergo with. And I actually believe that process is probably one of the most healthy things you could do on a psychedelic state uh, for the long term uh, that basically leads to um, really good properties, which is uh, something that Shenzhen Young also talks a lot about, which is increasing concentration power, increasing sensory clarity and equanimity. And I believe that high dimensional states of consciousness basically by default tend to contain more of these three things. And uh, the more you do them, the more you concentrate on them, especially on meditation. But, you know, when you have a psychedelic experience, it's an opportunity to basically do the, you know, turn turn the dial up to 11 and then like do this in a very, very intense way. Uh, yeah, that is going to increase all of those properties. And that's probably what your nervous system is going to be the happiest about in the long term. Um, now, fractality. You know, the, the high dimensionality also is related to fractality. I was talking about how, you know, when you twist the, the field of experience, 
you may have kind of these like polar coordinate uh, symmetries and resonances. Well, doing that type of process basically connects your experience in this crazy, I know it sounds bad from a scientific point of view, but it's kind of true, which is a holographic, it creates a holographic space where basically every part of the experience encodes the entirety of the information in the rest of the experience. So again, with the symmetry theory of valence, that would be a high valence state of consciousness because the overall information content is very low and uh, it has no dissonance, but it can be very oddly shaped. And, you know, in the upper ranges of the Hamiltonian, there is a ton of super crazy, irreducible mathematical objects that are these, you know, holographic fractal structures. Uh, which on DMT, they happen spontaneously a lot. On LSD, you kind of have to work to get them. Uh, on higher doses of LSD, they also happen spontaneously. But let's say on 100 micrograms, you kind of need to meditate, combine meditation with uh, with the state in order to create those fascinating thought forms. And uh, there's so many solutions. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say there, there, there's only, you know, these like polar coordinate fractal is only one because that's, uh, sorry, that's only one. Well, there's only one of them. Um but, you know, you, you have kind of like Julia sets, continuous Julia sets, uh, which are a type of fractal. You also have kind of these like crazy light show experiences where kind of different parts of your visual field seem to be uh, kind of like be light emitters. And at first the light emitters are the uncoordinated. But then over time with this annealing process, they start to be coordinated and eventually they become coordinated in a fractal way that is interlocking. And then for a brief moment, they can kind of all move together. You know, you can do operations like, oh, they all converge or they all kind of do this. You know, you can do weird things like that. And this is just kind of, I mean, just a hand, but like imagine a fractal hand. You know, there's this and then a smaller one and then a smaller one and a smaller one. And uh, maybe not infinity, but like there's quite a few levels of recursion and all of them are aligned. And then there is a, a time period where you can actually uh, manipulate them simultaneously and you get kind of this like aperture effect. Well, that's another one. You know, just one, one, you also have crazy uh, hyperbolic uh, honeycomb type of uh, fractal organization where all of your experience is basically organized in uh, in a fractal structure like this um, and also that has intense resonance and symmetry and it all will evolve together now again on dmt you get these things going to code for free uh super crazy high dimensional stuff on lsd you need probably a little bit of meditation especially to make them a uh, manageable, you, you know, being able to, uh, to do something interesting with them. But, um, uh, and then these can become like building blocks of like further things. So you can continue to increase the dimensionality by kind of, uh, tuning the field of your experience into these fractal holographic states, then remembering them and then using them as building blocks for even higher dimensional stuff. And that's why, yeah, I mean, people talk about this layers and layers and layers of, you know, heavens and higher dimensions. And that's true because you can use these building blocks for even more crazy high dimensional symmetrical fractal stuff. Um, it's also important to point out that uh, the, the, the entirety of the sheet actually contains information. And I think a lot of subconscious processing is actually going on in the file, fine level structure and a very crazy phenomena also happen sometimes where um, you may like process a very intricate or complex, um, uh, you know, event that happened in your life or or, whatnot, or like a math problem, seriously, or like whatever it is that you're trying to figure out. And at first it will be in your in the foreground. 
you will do kind of like a partial progress to see it in various different ways. And then you kind of get bored of it because you, you can't figure out more or you get distracted. You know, distractibility is very high on, on these uh, substances. And then that part of the field will kind of like migrate to the periphery of your field. And then you may be looking at a, another part of the field, but that intricate structure is still in the periphery, you know, and you kind of like can kind of like, uh, I don't know, uh, pull the sheet back again and, and you will reconstruct, you will reconstruct the shape again, uh, the, the intricate, you know, information processing and thought forms that you generated. And, uh, and I think that, you know, in light of that, I think like, you know, confusion is kind of a unpleasant because it's kind of eliminating that fine level structure. Confusion, I mean, uh, low dimensional states of consciousness like aggression and anger and s sadness and uh, despair and so on, they tend to, as a consequence, and like, as a cons consequence of the dissonance, uh, kind of like overwrite that fine level structure, which can leave you feeling kind of lost. Uh, but you know, if you have a, a psychedelic experience, when a clean, a clean, you know, really good LSD, <laughs> maybe with a little bit of Fendi Boot or whatever, just not distracted by anxiety and, you know, in a sensorily deprived state, a clean psychedelic state of consciousness, also combined with meditation, all of those good factors, that metadata, these like wrinkly, uh, you know, data structures that you've been exploring, yeah, it will continue to be there in the edges. And you can like revisit and uh, revisit and revisit and build and build and build. And, you know, after five hours or so, you have so many insights encoded in this hyperbolic field. And uh, that's beautiful. It's amazing that you can do that. And uh, and I think uh, uh, that's another reason why to take this seriously. Because the difference between doing this at a Spangl concert versus, you know, actually in a really good optimal space is the difference between having that metadata be completely lost or not. And a lot of the insights from a psychedelic state is going to be in that metadata. And uh, for it to come back later, you have to exercise them and, you know, meditate on it. And again, take it seriously, guys. This is, uh, this is very valuable research with a lot of valuable information. Don't get rid of that metadata. Um, uh, also, yeah, basically subconscious processing, like you can focus on the noise of your experience and uh, um, that itself will oftentimes be related to some kind of strange, oftentimes you're going to be working on a problem and you don't even know what problem it is that you're working on until you've done kind of like enough of these like micro adjustments until like the shape becomes clear and then you realize like, oh gosh, I was actually processing, I don't know how my father didn't, you know, praise me enough when I was a kid or whatever like um or or a math problem or or a or, or a social problem like whatever it may be there's a lot of like kind of like under the it's not exactly under the hood I mean it's still there but it's in the fine level structure of the field um kind of like unwrinkling and re-annealing these like microstructures is actually doing a lot of uh very very crazy advanced information processing um yeah, and uh, just to kind of like wrap up here, uh, I do think that dimensionality is a very good target. So if you do focus on the high dimensionality and use that as the annealing target, um, it will become like more DMT-like. And uh, and there is a quality of DMT, not necessarily at the super high doses, but like medio, like 10 milligrams or something like that, 
that everything is incredibly crisp. You have this very crisp field of experience. And I think that's, it's almost like the foam that underlies experience. I don't know if the quantum foam, but whatever it is, you know, this like flickering chaotic substrate uh, becomes a smarter. So, and that, that's, that feels on DMT. I mean, on DMT, you take a little bit of DMT and you feel like, wow, like I didn't know space could become like smarter, could become like, it feels very much like a super advanced alien technology. And maybe it is kind of an alien technology in a sense, but, um, and the, and I think that's high dimensional phenomenal space-time um, at the microstructural level at a, in the very high frequencies. Um, and if you do that, you know, that is so consonant, so beautiful and uh, so efficient at information processing. Maybe it's very expensive from the point of view of calories. I don't know. And definitely, I think it needs a lot of maintenance. You need to like continue to renew it and renew it, or otherwise it dissipates into something else. But uh, yeah, when people talk about like, you know, the the beautiful high clarity, you know, not confused or or disturbed or anything like high clarity, euphoric and beautiful, hyper dimensional, hyper intelligent sense of uh, you know going to a different realm of experience. I think it's that is like this high-dimensional micro-organization of phenomenal space-time. And it's so beautiful. I mean, in the long term, I suspect we will probably all be there. I mean, like, there is a sense when you try DMT that you realize, like, okay, yeah, some of this is very ansiogenic, some of this is very scary and so on, but there's an aspect of the experience that seems just really advanced, like a really advanced form of consciousness, form of organizing space-time, and that is probably going to be recruited either by our future selves or our descendants in order to just actually have way better lives. And that is, yeah, I mean, I think like an improvement to that would probably be even a better, you know, hedonic calculus than just being on MDMA all the time. Although there's like some, a little, there's a little bit of overlap. I think that is like even better. Um, yeah, I mean, if, when you take DMT, it almost feels like, oh my gosh, there's like a, a teeming multiverse of other entities that are already in that high dimensional space. And uh, you feel like we're missing out, that humanity is just, you know, <laughs> messing around, just not focusing on the things that matter because there's this high dimensional space we could be inhabiting <laughs> that is way more loving and way smarter. Uh, can, you know, solve conflicts way better than, than we can. So, yeah, focus on that. Try to uh, introspect on it and uh, and bring back as much information as you can because that's where that's where the good stuff is, as far as I can tell. Uh, the last thing is that I, I strongly think that meditation is highly synergistic with uh, psychedelic states of consciousness to be able to bring more back... Um, for example, if you've been doing loving kindness meditation every day for like three months or like a year or something like that, and then you take a psychedelic, any psychedelic, that meditation, you know, effort will show. Like you will notice how now you have kind of a, a the ability to generate positive, wholesome, universally loving vibrations and regions of your field of your experiential field 
they're like smooth and beautiful and and uh, devoid of, of tension and uh, and suffering that uh, can kind of like spread waves of love. I mean, again, I'm talking poetically. In the end, I think there's going to be a field, uh, a mathematical field uh, 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 set of equations that describe actually what is meta, what is loving kindness uh, in terms of the, the field uh, microstructural properties of, of the experience. But yeah, you can you can instantiate that. You can kind of make a, a shrine inside of your experience, kind of like, you know, the, the Buddha of compassion or Krishna or Jesus or emptiness or whatever you know cosmos universe whatever I, I don't i don't care about that but the point is that that if it's like universal love you can create this super grounding and, and beautiful region of your of your experience and uh and you will be very happy that you've been meditating often when when you do this because it's gonna show it's gonna it's gonna happen and it's gonna stabilize the experience it's gonna make it way more fruitful you're gonna remember more and I think it's the same with uh, like other meditation uh, techniques, like equanimity, for example, may manifest as much more of a free flow. And like uh, in uh, Mike Johnson recently posted an interview that he did with uh, Shenzhen Young in OpenTheory.net, which I'll put in the description. Which uh, yeah, talks about like equanimity as kind of this uh, uh, complete a absence of resistance. And I think like in a psychedelic state, that can also manifest in kind of this sheet. Uh, this uh you know hyperbolic sheet just like basically being able to unfold without disturbances and it's just a way better experience on the whole so yeah two thumbs up for meditation i think uh especially something like loving kindness or equanimity and stuff like that uh it, it's gonna be a game changer in terms of how you experience a psychedelic state of consciousness and uh and i think that's about it um we covered a lot of content and I know this is just the preamble to the next video, <laughs> but uh, we're taking these very seriously, guys. So, oh yeah, the last, last thing is if you want to see this type of research, this type of uh, descriptions, this type of, you know, paradigms really pushing the boundary in how we understand exotic states of consciousness um, and for the benefit of all sentient beings, hopefully, you know, understanding loving kindness and so on. Um, uh, I, one of the things you could do is uh, support the Qualia Research Institute financially. Uh, we're honestly just like bottlenecked by, by funding at this point. And uh, there's like so many very rigorous academic studies that we are pretty much set up to conduct and just, you know, write out the results and publish them. And we just don't have enough funding for that. So that's one of the things you could do to help, of course, there's many other ways. And one of the things I've been telling people is that uh, every time you do, you know, something like loving kindness meditation, uh, in my mind, you are helping QRI as well. Well, you're helping every every group of people who is, you know, trying to reduce suffering in the world. So do that as well. And of course, if you if you really have a passion for uh, for this stuff and you you're like, you know, technically advanced or you have a lot of meditation experience, high verbal fluency, stuff like that. You know, also like reaching out for volunteering, but uh, just being very, very honest here, the main bottleneck is, is funding. So yeah, maybe help us with that. So, all right, infinite bliss. And thank you so much. Chat to you another time.